Live from the Livingston campus of Rutgers University. This is RLC WVPH in Piscataway. 90.3 The Core. Independent community radio from Piscataway High School and Rutgers University. Learn more at thecore.fm. Many voices. One station. This is 90.3 The Core. Hello and welcome to Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum here at 90.3 The Core. In a 2005 speech in London's Trafalgar Square, Nelson Mandela declared, Overcoming poverty is not a gesture of charity. It is an act of justice. It is the protection of a fundamental human right, the right to dignity and a decent life. This quote speaks volumes and forces us to reflect on how we, are, we address homelessness, moving the framing of the issue from one of charity and philanthropy to one based in justice and human rights. This type of reconceptualization of homelessness is especially important in areas like New, Jersey, like New Brunswick and Middlesex County. According to the 2018 point-in-time count of the homeless, there are over 600 homeless people in Middlesex County and over 9,000 in New Jersey more broadly. And these numbers are probably larger in the sense of how um, these people are counted. One organization taking this human rights-centered approach is Shiloh, which stands for Supporting Homeless and Innovatively Loving Others. We are extremely fortunate enough to have Walter Harris, the founder of Shiloh, on Core of the Matter today, to discuss how he is organizing around homelessness in the local community. Welcome, Walter. Yes, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. So, um, you, of course, are a formerly homeless person. That's correct. Um, so, what was your experience like as someone living on the streets, and what were some of the things that put you in that situation? Well, there's no one causation for homelessness, and personally, what put me there was I lost a football scholarship here to Rutgers, Penn State. Uh, I had a wrestling scholarship. I got kicked out of my house. I was awarded the court. So um, I had a falling out with, uh, I guess, my brother-in-law and puberty, <laughs> and uh, I ended up uh, in a juvenile. My first exposure to the system was the juvenile shelter. Mm-hmm. So I ended up there, and that kicked me out my house, didn't allow me to play my senior year of football, and then prompting my graduation, um, I went to <clears throat> an independent living program, which once again is part of the system. It's a, it's a catch mechanism to sort of kind of get ward of the court's focus on independent living and being more self-sufficient. So I tried to ride that out, but I got, uh, mm, got kicked out of there and ended up in New Brunswick about 2003. <laughs> in the men's shelter and then i was like oh i can't have a curfew at nine o'clock so i hopped out the window never came back (laughs) and i listened to some street uh guidance counselors was ending me up in prison and uh went away for two years came back and that's sort of the how i fell in homelessness Mm -hmm. and then how would you so you've of course been in contact with social support services in like your experience um and like what were the kind of places that you went to and did you find those resources helpful or just kind of like band-aids? Well, beyond the street guidance counselors, there was initially back in 2003, Elijah Promise under a different leadership, um, God bless her, uh, executive director Lizanne Finston, who really had a heart for the homeless. And she was a master's of social work, master's of divinity, who took a liking to me because she's seen that I would volunteer, I would be courteous to clients and volunteers and all that. And um, they invested in me. They said, hey, Walt, would you help us, you know, just starting serving meals? Hey, Walt, would you help us with these referrals for the Ryan White program? Or, hey, Walt, would you maybe 
help us with some case management and be a case aid to us. And from that exposure, I didn't realize it, but they seen it, that I had the trust of the people because I was still homeless with them. Mm-hmm. And I started to developing my craft and my character and my skill set then, but I still had one foot in the street and one foot in human services. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, so that's kind of how Shiloh came into existence? Or? No, no, okay. actually not. My last stint with homelessness would be about 2014. About 2014, uh, uh, an old mentor of mine was on his, was on campus mentoring uh, some people in the area, and their organizing style reminded me of someone. And I happened to fall upon who it was. I mean, recognize who it was, and we met up. And he started guiding me again. But uh, what happened was is that I created a petition on change.org. And that petition on change.org, uh, it took myself and that gentleman, I'm not going to mention his name, to uh, – co-organized a group called uh, Rush, Rutgers United Supporting Homeless. And from Rutgers United Supporting Homeless, I started to work with them and say, hey, these are little simple gestures you can do to kind of get off the campus because Rutgers is set up where you don't need to step outside the campus where you think you have a pool, you got a movie theater, you got dining halls, you got showers, gyms, you got all these things. But as soon as you go right on George Street, you're seeing this homeless guy on the bench and this person with a sign talking about, hey man, can I get a quarter? Hey, can I get like a sandwich? Something like that. And they don't know how to deal with that besides hitting up the Rutgers police. So that's inhumane. Yeah. And from that, I had a very unique perspective because I worked clinically before. I worked with Middlesex County government. I worked with the municipal government. I worked with human services. I worked with Elijah Promise, Catholic Charities, and all those people. And when I come to see that, you know, they're talking to people and they're only calling them client. You know, the client-centered approach is not a real approach. It's yeah. it, it gets the numbers. It gets the stats. But it doesn't address the person it doesn't address the humanity of mm-hmm. that individual so that's really what, what what stirred me and then they had a city council meeting because when they ran a, a former code blue about three years ago um it was very understaffed um a gentleman fell hurt his head there was people using drugs there was a uh, you know all type of craziness happening and food was not up to par so i just said you know what i'm gonna go to this thrift store i'm gonna go get some leftover foods and i started delivering that food asking organizations and clubs to step up and deliver and then what happened the adverse that happened it became that we enabled the homeless and we gave such an outcry of different foods and 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 gestures of of love that they made a fake note on the door at like 2015 stating that we're closing the train station at 11 o'clock and everybody's got to go why because the homeless were sleeping inside there The Dunkin' Donuts used to have a window where the homeless would chill right in that little area and and sleep in that square. And from our heavy work of getting a lot of people to be aware of this issue, they shut it down because the students were finally coming off the campus and delivering some compassion. So then we all went to city council. And we went to city council, city council, and I quote, said, I only know that there's 15 homeless people. (laughs) When is the last time you left Rutgers Village? Yeah. (laughs) You know, so... I'll say it like that. Does that answer your question? So that's how like yeah. Shiloh kind of got it was, started. It was birthed that way, and it became an interfaith model due to the fact I had a heavy influence from a, um, a great mentor, a great friend of mine, uh, Reverend Pastor um, Seth Caperdale, the Reformed Church of Highland Park. Mm-hmm. He was able to, you know, bridle my anger and give it some justice, give it, give it, give it a focus, and give it a way to implement and impact the community because this gentleman. Would take refugees, would take homeless people, take veterans, uh, LGBTQ community, anyone, and you know would would invest his time, patience, and energy, and give them 
a sense of community. Mm-hmm. And then whatever was in their heart would manifest if they wanted to, you know. So I, I have much respect for that gentleman. And that model allowed me to use their thrift store, to use some of their leftover food, use their kitchen. And I just became consistent every Sunday. Then every Sunday became every Saturday. Every Saturday became Friday. And in this heyday, with the help of some Rutgers organizations like the Muslim Student Association, as well as, um, what is it, Thai Epsilon Phi, mm-hmm. uh, the all Marxist Leninist Union, all different type of groups started coming forward and helping people help people. Yeah. You know, and um, that's what started. So, what is the work now that Shiloh is doing? And can you describe this like interfaith model too more in detail? Certainly. Um, so, some of the work that Shiloh was doing, it's beyond hunger relief. So, beyond hunger relief, we have uh, a beautiful connection with the Eric B. Chandler cl- Clinic, which has been life saving to vulnerable people. Um, not only that, we have a very uh, unique unorthodox case management style which blends sort of like social work with pastoral care with and when i say interfaith and i say pastoral it's not just limited to christianity mm-hmm. it could be uh the muslim community it could be the john community it could, um buddhism it can be yeah. buddhist it can be anything you know hinduism um depending on that person because the homeless are impartial so we ask that we be impartial in our delivery of care yeah. and that's what the interfaith model is all about it's just being impartial and supplying that need without being like very institutionalized, mm-hmm. you know? All right, so we're gonna come back and talk about some more specific yeah. issues affecting the De Brunswick homeless community. But again, you're listening to Core of the Matter right here on 90.3 The Core. 90.3 The Core. I could hit you over the head with a wrench, or I could stab you in the gut with the knife. Choose your weapon. Knife wrench! Practical and safe. And we're back with Walter Harris right here on Core of the Matter. Um, so you mentioned before the Code Blue mm-hmm. program in New Brunswick, and you've described this program as more of a band-aid than an actual solution. And for those of our listeners who are not informed about this program, and I know you can probably describe this more mm-hmm. in detail, um, the Code Blue alert, according to... Um, their website allows authorities to take homeless people to local shelters or other agencies known as warming centers. And these shelters make additional beds and space available until conditions approve and the alert is called off. And typically the alert is made when temperatures drop below 32 degrees, although even this guideline is complicated and not always followed. And not all counties in the state even participate in the program. So what do you see as a better alternative to the program? And can you kind of give us more of the history of Code Blue as well? Yes. (laughs) So speaking to the history of Code Blue, firstly, is that in 2013, there was an initiative created by a reverend in Cumberland County called the M25 Initiative. Uh, Started from the fact that he went to his church to start his day and right outside his church, he had a Salvation Army box and found a dead homeless person. He called the mayor down there, called other clergy people and all faith leaders and the community got together. Four years later, fast forwarding in short timeline, uh, addressed the bill and got a bill passed called S1088, S1088, which is amended to like A4485, something like that, which clearly says that when it's 32 degrees or under, no, I'm sorry, when it's 32 degrees with precipitation or 25 degrees with a wind chill of zero or more, that they enact a code blue or an emergency shelter in a designated location. What the bill clearly says also is that the Office of Emergency Management is mandated to reach out to the local municipality to tell the police in that area to go find the homeless and bring them to a safe space that was not happening in New Brunswick. Mm -hmm. There was only 
a few code blues being called and they were making up an imaginary number at 20 degrees. So I went to the city council, as I've always went to the city council, (laughs) and I addressed them this time with an actual state assembly bill. And I said, this is unjust, this is against all human rights. I brought a person who was sleeping outside with me, brought some of my fellow organizers and members of Shiloh. Some of the members of Shiloh about faced me and said, Walter, you were out of order. But what I stated is that I was not speaking for myself. I was speaking for the human right and the dignity. You'll go get a cat off the street right now when it's 18 degrees, when it's 20 degrees, when it's 40 degrees, you'll go get a cat but you won't go get a human being and let them sleep. I had to literally call the mayor's office at 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night and, and beg them to open up a code blue for a 70 year old woman in a, in a wheelchair who was just peeing herself and just got released from a hospital, had no aftercare. I had to go intervene on behalf of a Caribbean gentleman who worked as a, as a professor um, and did his time as a professor at, at Seton Hall University and being victimized by other people from his pension and was walking around with walking pneumonia, dropped him off at welfare, had his family contacted, and now he's out of here. Mm-hmm. So what Code Blue has become, what Code Blue was initially set up to do was to say, yes, we want to we wanna save people's life and get them out of the cold because it's inhumane for anyone to be out here. But it was brought to light in the in the in a pool of human rights but they took it out of the pool of human rights and placed it in the profit and what i mean by that is that it only goes on from let's say the winter time when the winter months are until march so it's a temporary thing Mm -hmm. it's not all year long since maybe 2013 2012 i've doggedly went to city council and been asking and got all type of smoke and mirrors and people trying to jack intellectual property, people trying to give false promises stating they'll help me with this emergency shelter. And it's nothing's happened because when you look at the federal level, it says it's insane for you not to approach homelessness without the without the components of outreach, a drop-in center, and an emergency shelter there. In New Brunswick, the powers that be, the only thing that they have for the homeless community is a 40-bed shelter. A 40-bed shelter will not suffice when you have an epidemic of homelessness coming in from New York, coming in from Perth Amboy, coming in from Trenton, coming in from Philadelphia, and then your only answer is a 40-bed police, a 40-bed uh, spot as well as police. Yeah. You know, because if you're outside, you're loitering. Mm-hmm. If you're not going to work, you're trespassing. Or you know? panhandling. Yeah, yeah, yeah but now yeah. I'm happy you brought that up because there was another homeless gentleman who knew his law. He, he's a paralegal. Yeah. They kept messing with him. He's in a wheelchair. He's disabled. He went to the ACLU and got a law passed that gives him the right to panhandle or busk, which then enabled every other homeless person in yeah. the community, which is complemented by some other factors such as drug addiction, big pharma, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And what that did, it created a wave of unstoppable teams of canvassers. Yeah. You know? And that's what you're seeing. You're seeing every bench, every streetlight has a homeless person at it. And then when that, by the time everyone wakes up, they're gone. Where are they? They've been shuttled away and they're forced to go to the suitcase or they're forced to go to the river and hang out. And then when they're at the river, they get swept up, too, Mm -hmm. because there's some undocumented down there. Yeah. So is that is that humane? Absolutely not. Is there a solution? Absolutely. Yeah. So the solution is simple. Like, okay, let's do some case management. Let's do some outreach. Go to the people instead of the people coming to us. Let's get some metrics. Let's get some data about their birthdays and the time and how they became homeless. And then let's kind of refer them or if not refer them, let's encourage them through motivational interviewing and say, hey, you know what? Let's help you get your ID. Here's how you get your ID. And then when they get their ID, maybe I'll do two more steps and go to social services and go to the congressman office and focus my energy or pass it off to a person that I can trust that will 
do all they can to support that person and get him a better quality of life. Yeah. You know? And, you know, you've kind of mentioned some, like, different examples of who is homeless. You talked yes. about a professor, a paralegal. Mm-hmm. Um, and many people believe that homelessness is often the result of mental illness mm-hmm. or a substance abuse mm-hmm. problem. However, the most recent point in time survey, which again is flawed because how they even define a homeless person is very specific and doesn't include a lot of different nuances yes. in who is homeless. Mm-hmm. Um, but according to this survey, um, drug and alcohol problems are only the fourth leading cause of homelessness be- behind being asked to leave a shared residence, eviction, and loss of job or income. And mental illness is even farther back on the list at the, as the 10th leading cause. And in addition, many surveys have shown that the rates of mental illness among the housed and the homeless are virtually the same. And the gap seems to be untreated mental illness, which is the result of privilege and class position. So do you think that framing homelessness as an individual failure rather than a societal and structural one is helpful and hurtful or hurtful um, to how we organize around this issue and do you think there is a space in addressing the deeper roots of homelessness and is Shiloh entering that space do you think absolutely because Shiloh is entering that space and to answer all of those questions is that we front it as though we were serving food Mm -hmm. we front it as though we're providing just food food is the basic necessity a basic human right like food shelter clothing yeah right so we use that tool of food to discuss with people what's going on to gain the trust but we didn't really have to necessarily gain the trust due to the fact that i have over like a decade of homelessness due to my own decision right and what i mean by my own decision not only was i ward of the court but then i went to prison i became a felon so when i came a felon i may be super educated i may be able to canvas but i wasn't able to be hired at certain locations so i kept gunning or i maybe went left from commerce and started to work illegally and make (laughs) money so i can provide for my child and that constantly put me back into chronic incarceration and chronic incarceration speaks to debt and then if I have nowhere to go and I'm visiting the ER every day or every night because it's 20 below and there's no shelter, then eventually, I don't know, maybe I accrue a debt of maybe $10,000, right? At least. So complement that debt of $10,000 by child support, by municipal fines, and then that's one issue. But speak directly to what you said, job retention is crucial, it's very critical. But how can these people get a job if the government is stating that you're not eligible to work? You're not eligible to receive housing through welfare because you have a drug conviction. Yeah. Oh, you're not eligible uh, for this because uh, your mental illness is is a, is, a, is a risk right now. So it's not only mental illness, it's not addiction. It's more so a combination of those things. And really it's trauma because trauma I don't care who you are, and I always say this, I said this to your class, and I said this to the majority of the Rutgers community, what What are you gonna do, you know what I mean? Like, how is it, uh, you know, this is deep to me, this is very, I'm, yeah. I'm rethinking some traumas right now, yeah. it's deep. But, uh, you know, it's very traumatic because of the fact that, what are you gonna do that, if you haven't showered in three days, I don't care who you are, you start to feel like Tom Hanks and Castaway, yeah. you know? So now, imagine, it's a most critical time in your life and you're playing chess in life and you have to make a very rightful decision, but yet you have stressors of someone trying to assault you, stressors of where am I going to eat, stressors of where am I going to sleep, stressors of, oh my God, I might want a cigarette because I smoke cigarettes or I might want to drink because I have a, it's very cold out and the drink will warm my body. And I'm not saying you should drink or you should smoke or anything of this nature, but these are habits that have been formed as defense mechanisms to what they are facing. So to break down these barriers, is simple questioning, simple dignity, simple courteousness, simple old ethics that it seems like when you go out in society, 
Everyone's in a rush to go to work. When's yeah. the last time you got, oh, good morning, how are you? Mm-hmm. A simple gesture of courteousness. And a simple, instead of just giving a bag lunch or a toothbrush and saying, well, God bless you, have a great day, and walk away, why not just say, hey, man, what's going on? Everything all right? Oh, that's cool. Hey, um, how was your day today? You know, a simple gesture. And what that does, it lets that person know that you care, lets that person know that, you know what, he's not just here to get some information to write a paper about me, you know? So we have a genuineness, a genuine empathy towards the homeless community because one, the leadership of Shiloh was formerly homeless. And two, we've worked with all levels of government to address this issue and to find out who the major players are and what barriers are existing in the government that needs to be removed, Yeah, you know? And to be straightforward, you know, there needs to be a redistribution of power. There mm-hmm. needs to be a redistribution of power and focus directly on the social need. Because as a nonprofit organization or any nonprofit that exists, their mission is supposed to address the social need of wherever they are not just go on to the profitable issues. And what I mean by profitable issues and what you're seeing in homeless prevention is that it's profitable to deal with the veteran. It's profitable to deal with the mental health. Let's think about it, we're in the health sector. So what's the health sector say? That means big pharma. So excuse me, Johnson & Johnson, but you know, you're you're manufacturing a lot of psychotropic medication. Excuse me, UBHC, but you're you're enabling Johnson & Johnson to have clientele by going out and saying this person is deemed mentally ill. But what if that psychiatrist made a mistake? That means you just gave someone seizure control medication for no reason. Yeah. And now he starts to have the behavior of a epileptic or a mentally or bipolar person. So it's we have to really scrutinize this and we have to hold our local governments accountable. We have to hold our local senators accountable, our congressmen accountable, write them letters, discuss these issues and say, why? Why is this happening? What are you doing to affect this? Where is this at? And I've constantly did that. But I strengthened, I empowered the, the, the least of us to have this voice mm-hmm. because there was no one speaking on their behalf. I wasn't asked, I, I mean, I wasn't like thinking I would ever be in this position, but a friend of mine asked me to go speak at city council when they came in and tried to make a mockery of a, of a code blue to make a certain organization look good. And I wasn't having it because after trying to make this organization look good, I just remembered a week prior, a person died of frostbite down by the river, unpressed. It was, I mean, it was not placed in the press. Yeah. You know, and that's countless times since the 80s till present this mm-hmm. has happened. There's been, it used to be shooting galleries right there on the other side of Douglas, um, down by the Exxon, like when you drop down the yeah. hill, that big field, you know? They had, they had components in place. They had remedies for the situation, meaning they had a community pool. Why do I say community pool? Because community pool, it brings community, it brings jobs, yeah. you know, it lets people cool off, lets people network with each other. Oh, a neighborhood house, an after-school program, an urban league, a YMCA, yeah. they remove those things. Mm-hmm. They remove those things and replace them with seven different type police. Yeah, that's not the solution. Mm-hmm. And then, kind of just speaking to the history too of New Brunswick, yes. there's also a large, long history of public housing mm-hmm. in the city. Yes, um, and I've been kind of doing some research on this topic. Um, and there's one example I think that's so egregious in terms of just the ripping away of public housing from low income residents in the mm-hmm, city, mm-hmm. and that's the case of Memorial Homes, yes. um, which was a public housing. Um, complex of four high-rise structures, nine stories each, mm-hmm. um, along Route 18 in the city. Um, and they were built in, ni- in the 1950s, I believe. Um, and in the initial years of the project, very well maintained, fostered a community of minority residents, low-income residents. Yes. Um, and it was actually a very successful project in its first initial years. And then the New Brunswick Housing Authority um, kind of stopped maintaining it. There was 
a wave of drugs and crime that ran through the mm-hmm. whole city, not mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. low-income residents. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of those kind of worsening conditions correlated with the establishment of Devco in the 70s, um, which includes corporate interests like Johnson & Johnson, like Rutgers mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and they sought hard to redevelop memorial homes into low-density, mixed-income housing. Um, and there was one interview with the former president of Devco, Christiana Foglio, and she said, quote, for probably 50% of my time here, we were working on strategies to tear public housing down. And that was in the 80s and 90s. Um, And unfortunately, this became an extremely effective strategy because in August 2001, Memorial Homes was demolished and replaced with the Hope Manor Riverside um, townhouses and apartments, Mm -hmm. um, which was a complex of 144 um, public housing units, um, which... Memorial Homes was about 250 units. Yeah. So where, like, where did those I'm hundred so units? So happy you yeah. say. <laughs> okay. So forgive me for what I'm about to say. So yes, um, you are absolutely correct, young man. This is very deep. So there was yes. So let me say real quick. So regardless of that woman's quote from Devco, let's yeah. look at a real serious quote. Coretta Scott King on 1968 in June 19th stated that it's violence to have ghetto housing. Mm-hmm. Period. Yep. Period. Ghetto housing was a wellspring of culture, was a safe space, a safe haven for people to develop their culture, for people to develop who they were. Now, it's not the people of Memorial Homes' fault that the Nixon administration made a war on drugs yeah. and then they figured out crack hit that hit this area. Yeah. So you had crack cocaine, heroin, major crimes, different gangs, dyads, individuals, and things of that nature. But yet they're just coming off of the fire that just occurred before that, yeah. which is the fire of Martin Luther King, the mm-hmm. fire of Malcolm X, the fire of numerous activists, of the, Evers, of the FBI, mm-hmm. from Fred Hampton to all these yeah. different folks. And they looked at this and it was like, you know what? We can't tolerate this. On a positive note, though, around that same time, and I'm speaking 60s, in the late 60s, yeah. New Brunswick had a peaceful campaign with the acting mayor at the time, and they had a very peaceful riot. They did not riot. They said made an agreement with the government that we're not going to incite a riot and we're just going to make a peace treaty. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen in Newark. That didn't happen in L.A. Yeah. That didn't happen all over the nation. I'm only been in New Brunswick for 2003, but I have the history and the testimony and the unction to speak on behalf of these residents because I know these folks and I know these brothers and sisters and I've I've suffered with them. I've yeah. I've walked around and had the police follow us around with them when a gentleman was shot in the community. But speaking directly to that, we have to have some affordable public housing. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean developers making units that are <laughs> sky rises and has maybe five, three bedrooms in there for, for a low income family. Yeah. That does not make you low income. Mm-hmm. That does not make you fair housing. So when you say redevelopment or you say revitalization, it's only revitalizing their bank account. Yeah. It's not revitalizing the people. Mm-hmm. And then you what? You pick five people from the community to hire them and give them a New Brunswick Parking Authority position? Yeah. That doesn't mean anything. That's the same as Henry Rucker's having some slaves work his grounds right now mm-hmm. and paying them a meal at the end of the day. Yeah. It's the same difference because yeah. that's not a living wage. Mm-hmm. And I think you're also kind of getting to 
some of these like job training and career development programs that a lot of um, social like welfare and social services programs provide yes. for formerly homeless people and low income people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have places like Middlesex County College, which have these like adult education programs. But all of these seem very narrow in yes. terms of scope and the opportunities yes. um, available. Mm-hmm. And not to like deny the value of low skilled work. These people obviously are doing important stuff. Like they're definitely like contributing to society in many different ways. But it seems like we're kind of pre-deciding a certain type of life outcome for homeless people that may not align with their abilities and interests. And I think a status of maintaining a work a working poor status isn't necess- It's incrementally better than being a homeless person, but it isn't that mm-hmm. much better. Mm-hmm. And um, one economist, um, Jamie Peck, explains this kind of system is not about creating jobs for people that don't have them. It's about creating workers for jobs that nobody wants. And can you address what you see as like the gaps in these kind of programs and also just general like um, like low income jobs as well? So th- there's gaps in services. And I'll take you back to, I believe, early 2000s. There was a position given, I believe, by like the prosecutor's office in New Brunswick. They gave a few homeless people some newspapers and allowed them to sell newspapers right on Bayer Street. Mm-hmm. It went on for maybe about three years, two years, until, due to it wasn't monitored well enough, that um, one of the people handing out the newspapers was always extremely drunk. So they ended the program, right? Um, then they had this community guarding initiative. Right. So they started to say, oh, we're going to garden. I'm going to teach people how to garden and this, this and this. You were just having people volunteer on land to produce produce for a corporation <laughs> that was selling the goods back. Yeah. How did the people benefit? Because they got to take a half of a percentage of that little box that they made. Absolutely yeah. not. Because New America was built off free labor. Yeah. You know, we were the masters of civilization and growing and things of that nature. So it hasn't changed. And even the concept of landlord is imperialistic. So to change this imperialistic mindset or attitude, we have to look at the land and look at the structure that be. So the YMCA, going back to the YMCA, that was a great program because it allowed the community to talk with the government and have them in a very social environment like playing basketball or handball or just working out together and say, you know what, this kid is not too violent. This kid is a great kid. Let's give him a chance. You know, let's, let's send him to the mock, I don't know, political science college so he can learn a little bit about law. Mm -hmm. And then guess what? If they would have did that, maybe that child would have had the strength to talk in front of Congress and say, you know what? My grandmother's been busting her butt, working real hard, and is only feeding us off of this welfare. Well, you know what? I now know how to manage, create, and produce jobs. So what it is, it's, it's very displaced because there's no direct correlation between these power brokers and the community that be. They look at their failings, meaning they look at, if I deviate, if there's nothing for me to do, I deviate off the law. So when I deviate off the law, I have five different police and I have a prosecutor's office watching me in the streetlight. So now if I go to the right and I take something or I, I sell this and I do that, my intention is maybe to feed myself, pay my fine, and get my daughter some shoes and things of that nature. But there's another way. But no one has never stepped into that child and said, you know what? Let's show you how to use a ruler. Mm-hmm. Let's show you how to set up the ladder. So it's basic programming, as you stated. It's a bl- it's a, it's not like one thing. One thing just starts uh, ends the solution. Yeah. You know, we have to really focus on the on the root of it, and the root of it is having workshops. It's having workshops, and then. 
asking these, these city council members or asking these corporations they exist to come and do open houses in the community. Let them know they exist because half the resources that are created right now, 60%, I can guess, don't know about the resources. So that's been my job. It's been my dedication is just to say, you know what? Are you aware of that? Here, let me show you how to implement this. Let me show you how to get federally bonded. Here, let me show you where the free clinic is to get Medicare. Here, let me show you that uh, this job is hiring right now and the eligibility requirement is that you just have an ID and you know a little bit about warehousing. Mm -hmm. And then from that step, it's not just walking away saying he did it, it's checking in for at least a year. At least a year checking in. How's it going? Can I see a pay stub? Oh, you don't know how to type? Here, let me show you how to use your thumb on the space bar. These simple reforms, or not reforms, these simple cultivating, cultivating these educational skill sets puts person from working class poor to middle class. Mm -hmm. You know, because social mobility is what? The same hope that every Rutgers kid's come here for. Yeah. They said, oh, I, got, I, got out of, I got out of middle sex, or I got out of high school, and I'm gonna go get a four-year degree, and I'm gonna work, and I'm gonna make 100,000 a year. Doesn't guarantee. It's on you to promote yourself. The helping hand you're looking for is at the end of your own wrist. Yet, my challenge and my question is, what if 40,000 students really invested in the community for real in a five-mile city? What if they walk down Troop Avenue? What if they walk down Remsen Avenue? What if they walk down Lee Avenue? All three of those streets that I just mentioned are not on DevCo's map, are not on New Brunswick City map at all because they don't want you to know these places exist. But yet you have activists like Teresa Vivar of Lazos. You have activists like Seth Capadale talking to the most undocumented and refugees, people trying to resettle, being chased around by ICE. You have people trying to give these people simple dignities, simple civility that they may live upon the land and have the same blessing to say, you know what? I'm now inside my apartment and I'm gonna go to the store and get some milk. Yeah. Just that simple gesture. Right now, their life is like, you know what? I might have to sell my food stamps. I might have to sell my shoes. I might have to do this. I might have to sell some oils. I might have to go clean this, whatever, and do all these unwilling things that they, they don't want to do just to make ends meet. And then when they make ends meet, they have to do all those things over again. And then there might be a hidden fine because while they're out doing those things, one of those things might have been against the law. Yeah. You know? So that's the short answer. <laughs> but, you know, I kind of jumbled it together. <laughs> all right, we're going to come back and maybe mm -hmm. talk about um, what Rutgers students can do yes. to kind of help this issue out. Thanks for staying tuned to 90.3 The Core, and now The Core Community Calendar. The Women in the Arts exhibition, which displays work by notable women artists, runs until April 7th at the Farmstead Arts Center in Basking Ridge. Sunday, March 31st, the mid-century New Jersey exhibit opens at the Cornelius Lau House in Piscataway. This exhibit runs until June 28th. And now stay tuned, more great core radio is on the way. Um, so we're back here at Core of the Matter with Walter Harris of Shiloh, a local homeless organization here in New Brunswick. Um, so we were talking about before how a lot of Rutgers students are just ignorant of many of the problems that homeless people face in New Brunswick mm -hmm. and often just geographically don't go into certain areas that are highly affected by this problem. Um, so what do you see um, Rutgers being involved in the solution? Like, where do you see these students kind of playing in as a role in giving back to the community? Well, where I see the students playing in and as they're already playing in to this giant chess game is that, to be frank, there's plenty of abandoned buildings on campus. For instance, on Douglas campus, there's about 20 abandoned houses with a tennis court and about four administration buildings 
abandoned for the last like an entire three dining years. hall. Yeah, an entire dining hall <laughs> abandoned for the three years. Just suppose. Let me say it again. Just suppose. Forty thousand students took an interest in this property, and helped Shiloh manage and facilitate about maybe a hundred homeless people. Mm-hmm. Guess what, everyone? The homeless will no longer be homeless anymore. They will have the dignity to go outside and get the newspaper. They'll have the dignity to go to get some food. They'll have the dignity to wake up in the morning and get into the work van that's going to take them to work. They'll have the dignity to go to the computer lab, maybe led by Brother James here, and teach them how to attach their resume to Craigslist when they're looking for work. These simple edits can change people's quality of life. Or the Rutgers Medical School. Or the Rutgers Business School. Or the Rutgers Law School. Let's go. The Rutgers Medical School. Okay, so I have about 38% are African-American. 38% of the African-Americans, a lot of them deal with diabetes. A lot of them deal with hepatitis C. A lot of them deal with HIV. So the medical school can come out here and give treatment, can give clinics. The AIDS Hyacinth Foundation, which has already helped me save about three people, four people's lives, can come out on site, you know, and implement services that will change this person's life expectancy. Mm-hmm. And then give him because health is wealth, yeah. you know, and then let's let's talk to uh, the law school. So now the law school can come out. The law school can come out and help some of these people that have basic municipal charges or may have a crime against them. They don't understand. And this person can teach them about the statute and how to uh, how to apply the statute and defend themselves justly in the court of law. Or let's go to Blaustein. Right. Blaustein. Can we make a policy, Blaustein? Can we get a homeless constitution passed like they have in California mm-hmm. that states that you will not even come a thousand feet from me unless you have probable cause? Because under my constitution, I have the right to freedom of travel and the right not to be searched illegally. Yeah. But yet it's victimizing the homeless when you take my identification. If you take my identification, guess what? I can't go to the motel and avoid the snow, the rain, the sleet, or any of those things. I have to suffer in a parking deck. And suffering in a parking deck means the parking authority is going to go snitch on me, and then police is going to lock me up, and then I'm going to have a shelter in the sky. But what does that affect? That affects the Department of uh, Corrections. That affects the municipality's tax money they're making. You know, that does not affect me. That just puts me in debt, but I'm already poor. So... What I've connected to now is a bigger dream, literally, is the Poor People's Campaign. And the Poor People's Campaigns embodies all of those things I just mentioned, from public housing to police brutality to unjust medical environmental environmental issues such as, you know, because the homeless are on the land. You know, we have a former uh, a former homeless individual who loves the environment as a master's biology and he's creating park cleanups all over Highland Park, New Brunswick. And he does beautiful work because he cares about the earth and he also cares about the people on earth. But now can we add, we have earth and we have humans involved, but can we add a little heaven morality, you know? And what I mean by the heaven morality, the highest virtue to me personally is compassion, caring for other people more than you care for yourself. I'm not saying just give them everything you got until you're messed up, but I'm saying that little, just the same way you tithe, you can tithe to a homeless person and give those 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 Adidas in your closet corner, which now saved this guy from getting his toes amputated last night because he didn't have warm shoes. And you gave him some warm shoes and a pair of socks, and he was able to wake up and walk to lunch or walk to inside to get out of the cold mm-hmm. or the warming center that's supposed to exist that's not existing or the day center that's supposed to exist is not existing or the emergency shelter that's existing but it's not that doesn't really exist at the time. So we asked you... 
to come see us. Shiloh, New Jersey on Instagram. Get at us because we are constantly in the streets. And in our heyday, we were moving seven days a week without funding off in-kind contributions. We have received no grant money. We have received none of the sort. We've received only donations from caring people of all different faith groups. And these issues are very pertinent. So I'm asking Rutgers to step up and encourage them to get involved in the community. And what do I mean by that? We have venues we've created on a weekly, bi-weekly, and a monthly level. So bi-weekly, we have the Methodist Church where we give a breakfast, we have a social service table, allowing them the dignity of just to hang out and talk, play chess, you know, learn about resources available to them. We're, we're working on getting nurses to pull up to give blood pressure checks and things of that nature. Then we have the breakfast, same different community breakfast. That's more of an alternative trauma-informed style because the woman at the yoga st- studio is uh, a nurse by trade, but she's also teaches for addiction and trauma-informed classes, so she can teach you how to how to calm your nervous system yeah. and certain mantras to say, you know. So it's a holistic approach. It's no one causation of homelessness, so there's no one causation on how to remedy it. Mm-hmm. So we have like a smorgasbord of activities, which depends on what you say is your problem, because the homeless are constantly repeating their trauma, but they don't hear it themselves. So as we're listening. We repeat the trauma back to the homeless person. And once he hears it himself, he wakes up from that sleep. And when he wakes up from that sleep, you keep feeding him to keep him awake. And you keep giving him water to keep him actively pursuing those goals. Because these injustices, the the community of homeless are the most vulnerable populations upon the planet. Because of the fact there's hepatitis C, there's HIV. And it's so simple as just a cut. If I don't get a cut treated in the streets, I could die. I can literally die in the streets because I didn't I didn't put a band-aid on my cut. Cuz I don't know what's on the ground and that's where I'm sleeping. In yeah. short, <laughs> you know, excuse me, I got a little convicted. <laughs> <laughs> um but how important is it to be trauma focused in this approach? Um because I think earlier we were talking about like the client-centered approach mm-hmm. which kind of removes the humanity out of a person's experiences. Um and what do you like advise people like kind of approach this issue so um, let me give a let me give clarity so the client-centered approach is yes when you're you're what it means by is the person has to take the initial step to change because the case managers or the outreach team that be wants to look at the barriers that that person is facing now the humanistic the human right approach is more like food shelter and dignity Right. And that's a federal model created by the National Coalition to End Homelessness. And that's been adopted by HUD and everybody. Right. Or the um, New Jersey Department or Community Affairs. There you go. So Community Affairs, they give out a report every year that shows the best models in all of the nation on what exists. So what I did, I looked at the human rights national model on how to implement services for the homeless. And the top tier of that was outreach. You know, because in outreach, they're sh- you're clearly showing the homeless. And when I speak, um, when I speak to trauma, when I speak to trauma, is the fact that these individuals or this population has been so institutionalized that the moment that you speak or you appear in any form to be an institution, their phobias and defense mechanisms coming up, and they cut the trust off right there. Mm-hmm. So what Shiloh's been able to do is cloak the fact that we have those resources connected to the government that can help those people and state to them, listen, I will be your advocate. I will I will listen for you. You know what? Matter of fact, I will fax that paperwork for you because that person that's traumatized is so anxietyed up that he may not have a place to sleep tonight and that he can't see his child or that, I don't know, his mother's at the hospital and he can't visit her because he doesn't have an ID. Is so traumatized that we sort of have to be a conduit 
mm-hmm. for that emotion, for that trauma, and dispel it and then give back some empathy. Yep. You know, and that's the most important part is just staying calm, staying calm and listening. And another example of a trauma, style, like a, a humanistic approach, that Rutgers group that I aforementioned, Rutgers United Supporting Homeless, used to come out every Wednesday with cans. They first started coming out with regular cans, and I said, no, please bring pop tops. What if I don't have a can opener? Yeah. So they brought pop tops and little fruit bars and some stuff like that. They circled around the veteran, right? As they circled around the veteran, he was on the top of the platform. He got, he has PTSD. He snapped. He's like, oh, I'm going to kill myself. Oh, my God, I can't do this. And started to go towards the thing to try to kill himself. I had to restrain him, brought him away from the group. The whole group, like, turned pale. You yeah. understand what was happening? I was like, God, just relax for a second. I step into the side, and I use an effective style to use the system that we have here. And I called 211 for him. And then when I called 211 for him, I worked, I walked him through the steps and he talked and I said, make sure you tell him you're a veteran. And they gave him some, a sense of hope because leadership develops hope. And then from that, I had him call his wife and let his wife reassure him that she still loves him, he'll be okay and things of that nature. And then guess what? Nothing happened. Yeah. But guess what else happened? Every week I was out there for about eight months and his friends were enabling him to go to the liquor store. His problem that he had, an, he had an addiction problem, he was addicted to drinking. He was traumatized from whatever happened in the military. But I kept working with him, kept treating him as a human, key word, human. Kept giving him food, kept giving him encouragement, kept saying, hey, there's a job over here. So maybe the eighth months, the eighth month, it's like, bro, all you gotta do is walk two blocks in the other direction instead of going north or south. He's like, really? I'm like, yeah, go check them out. They're right there. It's Veteran Affairs. He went to Veteran Affairs, guess what happened? He got three months worth of back pay and has never been homeless since that day. The unfortunate thing though, and it speaks to recidivism of homelessness, not him per se, but his his son and the the son's baby mother were homeless maybe two weeks after that I got him off the streets. And he would still come out to visit his son and tell his son to talk to me while he was still in housing. And that's what it takes. It takes bless one, that that person that you bless becomes the peer expert not the pure advocate he becomes the pure expert because it took him, he turned he learned how to navigate through this broken system you know and do that so where you spoke to how do we fill in the gaps that was a beautiful question and how we fill in the gaps is you get in contact with your local continuum of care and that's the middlesex county government and you ask them what what programs do you have involved or you ask them to say hey i want to um i want to intern with you you know, so you can get a better grasp. Yeah. Or I want to intern with the congressman office so you can get a better grasp of how it's like to relay government funds to a municipal organization or a local organization. Mm-hmm. So you got to learn how how it moves and how it plays out and who it affects. Yeah. And then you see, oh, so this amount was allotted over here and this amount was allotted over there. So this person needs security funds. So I'm going to go to this organization. If this organization doesn't have it, I'm going to go to this organization because I don't want to bring back I don't know what to do to the person that I'm working with. Mm -hmm. And clearly I said the person I'm working with, not the client, because the client is a very derogatory statement which makes you feel less than. And they're already feeling less than because their whole goal during the day is not to let society know that they're facing homelessness. Yeah. I hope I answered some of your questions. No, definitely. (laughs) So what is your like ideal vision of the future? And what Mm. do you want to see in a community that has moved beyond homelessness? Hmm. So my idea, just for homelessness? Just, I guess in general. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so my five-year plan is to address the three social needs that I personally feel 
from the ultimate case study of suffering homelessness for like 14 years on and off, maybe the most time, six months, seven months in a place, is that the three social needs that New Brunswick needs is to address the felon community, is to address the at-risk youth, and to address the homeless. Shiloh, we've intermittently been working very target, uh, very focused and very precisely on the homeless issue. And um, we had a personal, I had a personal success with the charter school. I implemented a spoken word program, which is speaking to literacy, self-esteem, and then another halfway back program. And a halfway back program is like a re-entry, a re-entry clinic, meaning that when they came in, you would have these things that, you know, a lot of, a lot of brothers and sisters come home and they have no idea about technology. So implementing a computer program for them, implementing like a, a mentorship thing. I know they have the uh, Mountain View Project here on campus, which yeah. is a renowned, awesome program that I love and shout outs to Professor Roden. Um, so it's like, you know, you, ha- you have to have these things, not only on the campus though, but in the community. And that's the problem. Mm-hmm. So we gotta break this threshold because that threshold's been there that that's been there since 1960s and there should be no divide it should be an all-encompassing community and working towards a better understanding of one another okay and then how can students specifically and community members get involved in shiloh and do you have any like upcoming events or programs planned there certainly do this coming friday we'll be at the methodist church from 7 to 10 p.m um that's 323 george street i believe I will leave some more information with the core about that. Then this coming Saturday, the 30th, I believe, right? Yes. Yeah, it's the 30th. The 30th, this coming Saturday. (laughs) This coming Saturday, we'll be at the Garden of Healing, 27 Byers Street. We'll be doing a community breakfast, shallow breakfast, so you can bring some sneakers that are not too far gone, you know, get some socks. Uh, To all the RAs out there listening right now, I challenge you to put a drop box next to your desk you know, let's get a clothing drive going. Let's get a little means a lot. A mm-hmm. little means a lot. Let's get the hygiene projects going. Um, you know, the toiletry kits like deodorant, soap, socks, things of that nature. Um, but beyond that, beyond that, the humanistic style that we mentioned and the dignity is that what you guys are studying in, I bet that you would like to apply it. Yeah. I can give you every opportunity in the world to apply what you're learning by working directly with this community because this community faces there's a lot of injustice against social injustice against the LGBTQT community. Forgive me if I misquoted that. Yeah. A lot of injustice against the Muslim community. A lot of injustice against the African American community. A lot of injustice about the the migrant workers. You know, and when we when a Shiloh ran this emergency shelter, I'm talking about I had a pregnant mother. I had a single father with his daughter. I've had undocumented people. I had murderers up there, schizophrenics, and you name. And guess what happened? They all got a shower. They all got some food. They all were peaceful and they all did not meet any of the stereotypes that are out there in society because they're human beings. And the nature of humanity is to care for one another. Yeah. All right, Walter, thank you so much for coming on. Again, he's with Shiloh, which stands for Supporting the Homeless and Innovatively Loving Others. This has been Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum right here on 90.3 The Core. Live from the Livingston campus of Rutgers University. This is RLC WVPH in Piscataway. 90.3 The Core. Independent community radio from Piscataway High School and Rutgers University. Learn more at thecore.fm. Many voices. One station. This is 90.3 The Core.